Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. This summer marks the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing. The Bell Museum on the University of Minnesota's St. Paul campus is celebrating this historic first through a series of exhibits, events, and educational programs. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, a look at the museum's Year of Apollo, the Moon and Beyond. Our conversation took place at the museum. Holly Menninger is the Director of Public Engagement and Science Learning at the Bell Museum in St. Paul. Holly, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks, Jim. I'm glad to be here. Well, here we are. The museum now has been open in its new location for just under a year. Mm-hmm. I believe the grand opening was in July of 2018. And uh, for those who haven't seen the new museum, tell us about some of the big differences between the museum many of us might remember seeing as a school child back on the Minneapolis campus of the University of Minnesota. Well, I think visitors who come to the new museum are going to have their socks knocked off. Uh, our uh, building is a state of the art and a representation of Minnesota on the inside and out. So visitors who will walk in our building will uh, first see that we have a planetarium, um, a 120-seat state-of-the-art digital planetarium where we show uh, shows that we produce and people can tour the night sky. We uh, moved some of our uh, classic wildlife dioramas that people may have been familiar with at the right. old museum. Uh, so we went through a long and intense process to move those out of the old building, trek them across town, move them into the new building, and masterfully restore them. So a whole series of art conservation has worked on those. And rather than sort of walk uh, diorama to diorama to diorama, this sort of picture boxes and sequence, visitors to the new museum will get to walk and sort of take a walking tour of the biomes of Minnesota. So those dioramas are now set in context and people get to learn a little bit more about the ecology and, ha- and the interconnectedness of the organisms in those dioramas. We have a lot more hands-on interactive experiences. Uh, visitors will see another uh, old favorite. The Touch and See Lab is here, uh, is back in the in the new museum as well, but it has light in the room this time. The last time you may have seen it, it was in a a black box with all kinds of rotating, interactive, hands-on activities where our visitors can follow their curiosities, touch specimens. Uh, So uh, it's a a fantastic experience to acquaint our visitors with the natural history of of Minnesota, but then also to kind of expand their understanding of natural history to include the universe. And so with the planetarium, we've added the story of space science and astronomy to our repertoire. Restoring the dioramas must have been quite a task because I remember when I came to the new museum and took a look at those, I thought, wow, I didn't realize how much dirt could accumulate in multiple decades. They had but not. they look like they're brand new. They do. They had not been cleaned in their old location. And then, you know, in our previous location on the on the Minneapolis campus, I think was fairly close to a rail yard and a physical plant where they accumulate dust. People used to be able to smoke in the museum. Uh, so they accumulated a lot of dirt and dust. Uh, and that team of restorationists just did an amazing job sort of delicately cleaning, brushing off dust, doing both also the background um, paintings were also uh, meticulously cleaned. And then um, in addition to cleaning them, some of the birds, the coloration on their feathers may have faded, so they were retouched, puffed with little bits of pigment. We added, upgraded the lighting and added anti-reflective glass as well. And so now they just pop. I think one thing that people don't also realize when they look at the dioramas, they notice the taxidermy first, the, the animals. But when you look at, I think what I marvel at the most are all the green parts of the diorama. So the plants and the mosses and the the things that look alive, all of those green things were handcrafted, made out of paper and wax, um, done by a person. And so those were all cleaned and and replaced in, in their proper location. 
Let's talk a bit about the history of the Bell Museum. It was uh, originally started as the James Ford Bell Museum of Natural History on the University of Minnesota's Minneapolis campus. And uh, it stayed in that location for many, many years, came to St. Paul, the St. Paul campus of the University of Minnesota last summer. Tell us about, first of all, the overall mission of the museum and how has the museum's mission evolved with time? Absolutely. So we were actually founded in 1872 as Minnesota State Natural History Museum. So we were charged by the state legislature with uh, collecting, preserving, and interpreting the natural history of Minnesota. We are held in trust here at the University of Minnesota, and we are really pleased and proud to be part of the University of Minnesota. In fact, one of our missions today is to really be the gateway to the research uh, at, that's taking place at, at the university. And so visitors who come to our museum in the exhibits, you will learn about and you'll get to meet scientists at the University of Minnesota, but you also get to meet those people uh, full, uh, live and in person at our programs and events. Uh, you know, our official mission uh, now as an institution today is to uh, ignite curiosity and wonder, explore connections um, to nature and the universe, and to inspire a, a better future for our evolving world. And so we see that as an opportunity to uh, really sort of help our visitors explore and understand the tremendous natural history we here, have here in Minnesota to celebrate that um, and then possibly to take to be wowed and then take the next step and get involved. And so something like citizen science where the public can participate in, in research is one of the ways that we can activate our visitors. Holly, you mentioned the museum's edition of the planetarium when it reopened last summer. As far as I recall, there aren't that many planetariums in operation in Minnesota anymore. There was one at the old Minneapolis Public Library for many, many years. That, of course, was not recreated when the new library was built uh, a number of years ago. So was this a void that you saw the Bell Museum ought to fill? Well, the Bell Museum actually merged with the Minnesota Planetarium Society. And ah, so uh, we both, at both as institutions, were... Uh, felt that it was important to sort of bring the state-of-the-art technology and a new building to life. And so we, as, a, as institutions, realized we could be stronger together. So we merged uh, several years prior to us moving over here uh, to, be, to the, the new Bell Museum. Well, let's talk about uh, this year. Of course, it marks the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing. That's July 20th of this year, 2019. And uh, you have had a number of events thus far for the last several months commemorating the moon landing. You just wrapped up the Museum of the Moon, but there's still a lot to come here before the big day, July 20th. Tell us about some of the activities and exhibits that will be taking place to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Yes, so prior to July 20th, um, uh, so starting July 16th and lasting for about two weeks, so until the 28th, we will be hosting some lunar samples. So visitors will be able to come to the museum and actually get to touch and see, well, touch in a case, uh, actual uh, lunar rocks that were collected by Apollo missions that took place over the course of 1969 to 1972. So you'll get a chance to get up close with real uh, bits of the moon. Uh, we will be celebrating on July 20th. We're going all in on Apollo. So the day starts with a cosmic 5K, We'll, and we'll also have outdoor activities where visitors can take place in uh, physical challenges, much like that the astronauts go through in training. Uh, they'll be able to um, build these water rockets and shoot things into the air. And then inside, we'll be celebrating, um, we'll be hosting ambassadors, solar system ambassadors from NASA, who will be leading a bunch of hands-on activities. These are actual NASA employees? Or? Uh, they're volunteers, volunteers who've okay. been trained by NASA, incredibly knowledgeable, space enthusiasts, um, full of 
energy and enthusiasm. We've had the opportunity to work with them over the course of the last year. Um, and they, I don't know if it's, if we can find anybody more excited than us about Apollo, but I think they, they might, they might be close um, and maybe have the edge on us on, on that front. Uh, so we'll have all kinds of hands-on spacey activities. And of course, uh, we have a brand new planetarium show that we debuted on June uh, 8th called One Giant Leap, which actually incorporates archival footage from um, the Apollo 11 launch. And so we take visitors um, and into the story of the Apollo missions, uh, culminating in the launch and the landing of the Apollo 11 capsule on, on the moon. Uh, we explore how our scientific understanding of the moon has um, increased as a result of those Apollo missions. And um, we encourage, and we take the visitors next to think about where we're headed next. Uh, so what the, whether that's back to the moon or Mars or beyond. Let's talk about some of the other exhibits at the Bell Museum. You mentioned that you have a lot of hands-on interactive exhibits. Tell us about that. We do. So the Touch and See Lab is open all the time. So that's the space that the Bell Museum really pioneered about 50 years ago uh, in partnership with the College of Education at the University of Minnesota. And the idea in that space is to break the glass. We want visitors to actually touch specimens, which is typically a no-no in museums. Uh, and we don't have a lot of labels on things in that space, and that's intentional. Uh, the idea is for a visitor to come in, to start asking questions, and to follow their curiosity. It's a facilitated space, uh, so we have student interpretive guides who are on hand to help people in that process of, in of inquiry. So that's a place where uh, visitors can get hands-on all the time. Uh, for the summer, we have a space called the Solution Studio, which is our version of a maker space, and it's really about creativity and problem solving inspired by university research. So a visitor will walk in, they'll learn about four different research groups at the University of Minnesota, and from their research, we draw a challenge, an activity, something that they have to do, and we provide the materials and tools to help them solve that challenge. And there's some fun ones this year, so keeping along with that space theme, uh, one of the research groups that we highlight built an instrument that is on the Parker Solar Probe, which is a satellite that's going as close to the sun as any satellite has ever gone before. And those researchers, when they were designing that satellite, had to think about the challenges of, of the actual you know, physical part of sending something towards the sun um, and having an instrument that's sensitive enough to get the data that they need without catching on fire. And so it's really about navigating trade-offs. And so visitors, we, have, we provide them with these little ozobots, these tiny robots, where they have to navigate those ozobots through a maze to get to the sun. Uh, we have another challenge that's focused there on um, research that's happening at the Large Lakes Observatory at UM Duluth. And there, um, a visitor needs to sample a lake. We call it Solution Lake in keeping with the Solution Studio. So they have to engineer a device to sample the lake. And that's modeled after research of, of Jay Austin at the Large Lakes Observatory, who's trying to understand um, changes in the temperature of water in Lake Superior over space and time. Turns out, it's our largest Great Lake, but we know very little about some of the physical dynamics that happen in that lake. And they're surprisingly similar to what you find in an ocean. You had mentioned citizen science projects. Tell us about some of those that are going on at the museum. Absolutely. So the citizen science is the idea of the members of the public and researchers partnering together to create new knowledge, to do scientific research together. We incorporate citizen science in several ways in the museum. So a visitor, as you're walking through Minnesota Journeys, which is the name of our permanent gallery, you um, will encounter several discovery stations. So you'll meet a researcher at the university, learn a bit about their work, and then um, be, and then you'll learn about citizen science and 
opportunity where you can get involved in doing research. So that may be identifying exoplanets. It may be participating in a project looking at the biodiversity of native bees. There's lots of lots of opportunities and calls to action to get involved in, in that way. We also have um, a project that's really focused on our landscape. Um, we sit on a five-acre learning outdoor learning landscape that's full of native plants and all kinds of critters come and it has a pond as well so there's lots of it's really busy right now uh, and we encourage people to use an app called iNaturalist uh, we have a special bell museum project in there where a visitor who's walking the trails in our landscape might see an interesting butterfly or a bird or a, a wildflower you snap a photo of it upload it to our project and um, the identification is crowdsourced but it's also helping us learn um, and make a list of the biodiversity in, in our landscape. The Bell Museum proper um, has, a, has a project called Mapping Change, which is an online citizen science project where um, we have images of specimens from our collection many of which have tags that are handwritten. And it turns out people are better at transcribing with their eyes what those tags say than a computer. And so um, on that project, so it's called Mapping Change, uh, visitors or um, anyone who wants to participate, you don't have to be a visitor, you can do this online. Um, you'll be served up an image of a specimen with a label and being asked to transcribe that. And that's part of a larger project that we have called the Minnesota Biodiversity Atlas, where we um, are making accessible to the wide public the specimens in our scientific collection that are from Minnesota. When Dialogue Minnesota returns, more of our conversation with the Bell Museum's Director of Public Engagement and Science Learning, Holly Menninger. I couldn't help but noticing the couple of times I visited the museum since it reopened in St. Paul that you have a, a wonderful exhibit where visitors get a chance to see if they can mimic the mating dance, I believe, of some sort of, <laughs> of the crane, crane, correct? Yes. That's correct. That's pretty entertaining. Some people really have uh, the moves down, I they can They do. You. <laughs> that I love sort of taking my name tag off and just sort of watching what happens uh, in, in the gallery. So that I, that's also part of that walking tour of the biomes of Minnesota. So it's in our Prairie and Savannah section that features a diorama that has our, our sandhill crane and the, and the whooping crane. Uh, and sandhill cranes, uh, the males do an elaborate meeting dance. And so you stand in front of a camera and um, first it teaches you the dance and then you're allowed to practice the dance and then you have to do the dance and you're given prompts along the way. Uh, and then visitors are very often delighted at the end. Your, your performance is recorded uh -huh. and so you get to see it on, on playback, uh, which, which is fun. I have seen on a couple of occasions uh, some people not bringing their best dance game to the floor <laughs> and so the female will actually reject you uh, if, if, if if you don't, if you don't, if you don't bring enough enough energy, but uh, yes, and I have seen. Um, you know, we frequently will do tours of special guests to the museum, and so I've seen people of, of important stature participate in the crane dance, and it, people of all ages enjoy that that activity. And I imagine a lot of the crane dances get shared on social media. They do, and they, you know, we let the visitors uh, do that themselves. But it is it is very common for someone to while while we record for playback just in the moment, a visitor standing nearby will often have their camera out and be recording and sharing those those elaborate dances on social media. 
Coming up this summer, you have a series of summer space camps for kids kindergarten through eighth grade. Tell us about those. We do, yeah. So we have, they're actually for grades um, one through six are the focus of the particular space camp. So uh, for the youngest kids, we have Ready, Set, Lift Off. Uh, for the middle set, we have Star Stuff. And for the older kids in fifth and sixth grade, we have something called Aerospace Engineering. And um, all of those camps will have a, an astronomy and space science bent to them. Um, and during the week, of leading up to the Apollo anniversary, so the week right before July 20th, uh, those kiddos will be involved in doing hands-on activities where they might be designing spacecraft or thinking about um, designing a lander uh, for for the moon. Uh, they'll have the opportunity to meet researchers in the fields of astronomy and space science. Uh, some of those kids will be making water rockets themselves to launch prior to our to our big anniversary event. Um, and every day of the week during our space-themed week, the kids will be seeing uh, a planetarium show. So we're going all in on, on, on making sure that they have that immersive experience in our planetarium. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what went into producing the one giant leap production that's now showing in the planetarium. Yeah, so our team did a lot of historical research. We, we have a lot of conversations about, um, you know, talking about a show where, you know, many of the people that were involved in the production were not alive for the, the actual moon landing it, itself. And so it was really important to us to make sure that we talked to people who experienced it, uh, that we did a lot of, of reading and sort of make sure we were clear on our history, understanding the science, consulting with resources from NASA, consulting with with, uh, folks with the NASA Solar System ambassadors to make sure we had a sort of really um, a good understanding of the significance of it, um, the science of it, and what the outcomes of that mission, what has it meant um, over the longer term for, for the space missions. And then our team, sort of with that background, research, and understanding, uh, it was important to, for us to um, create a compelling story that draws people of all ages, those who experienced the moon landing live or those who had only heard about it, to make it make them have that goosebump moment. And I would put money down that um, for that portion of the show where you hear the um, you know mission control talking to the guys in the capsule as they're getting closer and closer and you are flying over the moon and sort of you are taken on that journey. I think everyone in the room holds their breath and gets those goosebumps um, because it was such a powerful and inspiring moment. Um, and I think we're all, you know, whether we live during that time or, or not, I think this idea of sort of exploring the furthest reaches, going to the places in, in the universe that we haven't explored yet, there's something um, awe-inspiring and um, sort of universally human about wanting to go on, on that adventure, and we really want to tap into that. Well, you mentioned the um, historical context. Obviously, the moon landing happened 50 years ago. Our last uh, journey to the moon, I believe, occurred in 1972, so it's been quite a while since the United States has sent anyone to the moon. For younger people, uh, does the museum staff sense that they grasp the magnitude of what happened on July 20th, 1969, or do they take it for granted to some extent? Oh, that's an interesting question. You know, I, th I think people, when we're able to set it in context, context for them, as in that, you know, the lunar lander, I think I had read that the amount of sort of computer power on that lander is less than you find on your iPhone today. I mean, essentially, astronauts were on a tin can that went into space <laughs> and landed on the moon. And I think if you put it in that context, I think people's jaws just, just dropped. Um, and, you know, I would say that the younger generation 
um, are inspired. We had, when we hosted the Museum of the Moon, which was this 23-foot diameter, full-scale model, inflated model of the moon that hung in our, our Horizon Hall, um, both the the people of all ages that attended our moon tours and the students, our guides that were giving those moon tours were just awestruck and, and inspired and were able to really drive home that this was a feat of, of engineering and innovation. And I think there's a lot of energy around um, sort of looking out to the future and where are, we, where are we headed next? You know, we talk about going to the moon as sort of our next step to get to Mars. Uh, we have astronauts that are up on the International Space Station and I'm, I think one thing that I've come to appreciate, and I'll, I'll say, uh, full disclosure, I'm an entomologist by training, so I, am oh. not, I, I have no background in space science or astronomy. We're at home with bugs. Yes, I, I, yes. Am. I am. And <laughs> ants have been up in space, but uh, so I can make that connection. But I think that one thing that I've come to appreciate over the last year of the museum's opening is that people are inspired by space. They're so enthusiastic about space content. We hosted a space fest uh, earlier in the year in January, and thousands of people came out. We had a, an eclipse, a lunar eclipse event that evening. It was minus 10 degrees. It was a cold night, I and remember. And we had hundreds of people line up to see that. And I think that um, I'm inspired by that. And, and I think, and I see that in our visitors every day, and even more so as we're leading up to the anniversary of Apollo. So I think it's a really exciting time to be talking about the, you know, recognizing and celebrating the past, but then also looking forward, forward to the future. You mentioned the uh, lunar eclipse event that happened back in January. Are there more nighttime events here at the university where you break out the telescopes and take a look at some interesting celestial bodies? We do. Those um, We've actually wrapped up our season of uh, what we call star parties for the summer because here in Minnesota, it takes a long... It, it gets dark so late that we would be having a very late night event. And so we don't do the sky watching events in the summertime unless it's something really special. Uh, those will resume in September. And so on a, um, a one Friday a month, we host star parties and we'll be launching later this fall a statewide star party. So more to come on, on that front. Um, we also have, um, during the daytime, we do bust out telescopes, believe it or not. Uh, we have uh, two Sundays a month. We have have what we call solar Sundays. And so we bring a special telescope out onto our observation deck. We put on a special filter to make sure that yes. everyone's eyes stay safe and um, and do some viewing of of the of the sun that way. We it was great this last Friday, the last Friday of our Museum of the Moon event, um, we had sort of a bonus evening and we partnered with the Minnesota Astronomical Society. They're also partners with us for our um, evening sky watching events during the course of the, the school year as well. But they brought out their telescopes. It was a clear night. People could see the moon. People could also see the moons of Jupiter, um, which was, you could see four of them, which was pretty exciting for, for a lot of visitors. How is the museum dealing with the impacts of climate change? That's a, that's a great question. So uh, visitors can learn about uh, the impacts and uh, climate change on the biomes of Minnesota in our exhibit galleries. And so one particular striking place where we talk about that is in the Big Woods, Big River section of our Minnesota journeys. We have a diorama of um, Clear Lake, which is in a real place is in Wasika. Uh, the, 
the view that you see represents um, a view that the the diorama maker saw in May in the 1940s. Um, and so you see uh, a forest understory with wildflowers blooming. Uh, and if you look at the data today, you would see those same plants blooming about a month earlier. Uh, and that's largely because of the, the warming temperature. So we talk about that, but we also, um, in the Imagine the Future Gallery, which is sort of the end of that journey, we talk about work that's happening at the University of Minnesota where researchers are trying to uh, understand the uh, impacts of climate change and, and are working on adaptation and mitigation strategies. We hosted this spring an exhibit called Weather to Climate, Our Changing World which uh, talks about those very things. What is weather? What is climate? Um, what are the impacts that we are, we are seeing? And we felt it was really important not just to talk about those topics, but to provide our visitors with some agency and some ability to what are the next steps that they are going to take? We don't want them just to be like, ugh, this is happening. Let's do something. And so we um, further highlighted work that's happening at the university, researchers who are trying to understand impacts on, on forests um, and sensitive biomes. But then we also provided our visitors with a lot of resources so um, and asked them to reflect and sort of um, journal about what they, what they might do. Um, on, on their own. Along with that exhibit, we hosted uh, a number of, of public programs. So we had one program was, was a lot of fun. We had Mark Seeley uh, and Paul Hutner, uh, two other radio personalities that people might hear, uh, and that they had a conversation about weather and climate in our planetarium, uh, which was, was, a, was really great. They, did a, they had a, you know, a really engaging discussion amongst themselves, but then engage the, the, the attendees um, as part of that conversation. How is the Bell Museum funded? Uh, so our funding um, from several sources. So um, we do charge admission. We do receive some money from the University of Minnesota, and then we'd also re receive some support from the state. And then we have um, a number of um, private, nonprofit, and um, corporate funding. And how can people find out more about the programs at the Bell Museum and how to become members? Uh, I encourage you to go to our website. So that's bellmuseum.umn.edu. Also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and that's at Bell Museum. Holly Menninger is the Director of Public Engagement and Science Learning at the Bell Museum. Holly, thanks for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks for having me. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. Next week, a look at how international politics are impacted by a country's nuclear arsenal. University of Minnesota Assistant Professor of Political Science Mark Bell joins us to discuss his research. I'm Jim Dubois. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening.